0: This is Tathra Street, Leadership Futurist. Welcome to episode 46 of Tall Poppy, where we look at leading differently, challenging the status quo, and amplifying the voices of human centered leadership. I first met Lindsay when we were both in a 40 week business accelerator program that is now Dent Global, because we were both up for making a dent in the universe. I enjoyed hearing her speak because her Canadian accent was comforting to me after being back in Australia for over a decade after being in Canada for 25 years. So towards the end of that 40 weeks, we got to know each other a bit better and as you'll hear, we did some coaching work together and since then, things have changed a lot for both of us. She's now running a very successful startup consulting agency in the water industry and has recently asked me to join forces again. We're running the Foundry Leadership Foundations Program for Young Water Professionals in Melbourne starting next year. More details on that after the interview and in the show notes if you don't want to wait till the end. In this interview, we talk about what might be possible if we pursue multiple benefits in our strategies and consider the implications of things like bringing public utility budgets together to leverage the work that's needed as places like Melbourne grow at rates that outstrip our ability to prepare infrastructure. From big picture to on-the-ground lessons like being able to have your business function without you, Lindsay Brown is a leader that I admire and am delighted to be working with. I hope you enjoy our conversation. All right, I'd like to welcome Lindsay Brown to Top Poppy. Welcome, Lindsay.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Tathra. I'm, I'm so excited to uh, be chatting with you.
0: So let's start with where in the world are you? I am currently in Melbourne, Australia. And can you say anything about where you're situated at the moment? What's what's in your surroundings?
1: Yeah, So um, Melbourne is uh, a beautiful green city. It's actually the most livable city in the world for many years running. And coming from a water background, I think for me, one of the most iconic parts of Melbourne is the Yarra River that runs through the center of Melbourne and is really uh, a center of focus for the city, the way that it's been constructed, the way that it was actually colonized in the beginning. Mm. So the Yarra, and of course, as a, as a rower, I row on it uh, nearly every day. Um, but the Yarra River for me is a really important part of, of Melbourne and, and Melbourne life. Um, But as you can probably tell, and your listeners can probably tell, I'm not originally from Australia. Mm -hmm. I'm Canadian. I've lived here for about 10 years. I guess the connection to my Canadian roots that I'm looking at in my more immediate surroundings in my home is uh, actually a Halloween pumpkin. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, and we've got a I've got a, a big orange pumpkin staring me in the face, which is not a, a terribly Australian thing, um, and is more more back to my Canadian heritage. So I've got a little mix of both going at the moment. So
0: let's talk about your work and what's important to you about what you do.
1: Uh, I run a consultancy called Foundry, uh, and we work in the water industry here in Australia mainly, doing strategic engagement in the water sector. So what does that really mean? What we try to do is actually. Find change makers in the industry that are trying to push along new ideas and, and really evolve the way that we think about urban water management and remove some of the social barriers that they experience um, in the uptake of their work. So, helping them get things through government, helping them get ideas across to community, to people who need to live with solutions, invest in solutions, accept solutions, and try to move the industry forward in a way that supports that great technical knowledge, but in a way that we have probably not focused on very much in the past.
0: So there's a couple of things I want to draw out um, from what you've just said. One is about the technical knowledge and being able to communicate that. And the other is about urban water management. For listeners who aren't familiar with what that is, can you just say a little bit more about what that means on the ground for people on a day-to-day basis?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, water is a huge part of people's day-to-day life, whether they you know, know it or they don't. People's most common interaction, I guess, is the water that comes out of your tap and the water that goes away from your toilet. Um, Believe it or not, there's a whole industry involved in in making that happen uh, and making sure that the water that's provided to people is safe about 100% of the time (laughs) and available. Um, And so I think as an industry, we've actually become a victim of our own success in some ways because the infrastructure that provides that incredibly high quality, incredibly reliable service to people in places like Australia and, and in Canada is completely underground. It is literally out of sight, out of mind. You know, all those pipes are where you can't see them. And so I think people feel very disconnected from the water industry and the services it provides And as we've you know, dealt with shocks around climate change and drought conditions here in Australia, but also flooding and you know those types of challenges. We're realizing that you know the water industry is actually so much bigger than just drinking water and and wastewater. It actually involves all the water that falls in a city. It has to do with you know water for urban greening and street trees and and you know parks and and sports fields and things that communities really value, as well as you know those other sort of more practical kind of public health considerations.
0: So. We- would you say that given, you know, Melbourne has some of the best water in the world in terms of what comes out of the chat? So would you say that that is a win? That's the, the fact that people don't even think about where their water comes from. Does that mean that the water industry is doing a good job?
1: Yeah, I, I think the water industry in Australia, um, generally speaking, I mean, obviously, I have Victorian industry better than, than the others, but we do an incredible job of, of providing really high quality water at a very uh, high level of service to people. But Yeah, I think that that our ability to do that is under increasing strain from, as I said, like, you know, climate variability and climate change, as well as, you know, population growth. I mean, Melbourne is growing so quickly, um, you know, looking at becoming a city of eight million. You know, how are we going to continue to provide this very high level of service with those pressures? And that's something that as an industry we're, we're trying to get creative about solving.
0: So let's go back to the technical piece. So part of what you do is about communicating technical knowledge. So can you talk a little bit about what's important in that space and some of the stakeholders that you're developing that communication for?
1: Sure. Well, I think you know in our industry we have a lot of engineers, <laughs> as you might imagine, mm-hmm. and people who specialize in water treatment, in building water treatment, in planning infrastructure, in you know things like membranes and, and all different kinds of science and technical understanding of water in all its forms and all its uses. But the people who make decisions about water uh, are often not technical specialists. You know, obviously people in government, um, people in communities, uh, are, you know, don't have that that. Level of detail, and if we're going to change the way that we think about water and how it's used and, you know, what it's going to be used for, potentially, you know, with less of it to go around, um, then we need to make sure that those changes are being well communicated to people who need to understand them, live with them, pay for them, etc. And so we're talking a lot with people who are coming up with new ways of approaching, you know, water management, so that help them be more effective in, in looking at those new and emerging solutions.
0: So one thing that stands out for me in terms of the way that we have designed water availability in urban centres is the whole idea of flushing drinking water down the toilet. What's your take on that?
1: It, it it does seem a little bit crazy, you know, when you think about it in that way. I mean... I guess the practical realities of, of providing an alternative are tougher than they sound. Mm-hmm. If we're going to provide recycled water for things like toilet flushing, for example, you need to have a whole another set of pipes to actually mm-hmm. do that uh, and so so that you don't contaminate your drinking water. But then actually installing those pipes in existing communities is really expensive because imagine all the places you'd have, you'd have to dig up uh, and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So as much as some of these solutions or alternatives might seem really straightforward in theory, actually implementing them, especially in already established areas, is actually a lot harder than it sounds. So is it something that we should be thinking about? Absolutely. Um, and we talk a lot in the industry about fit for purpose water. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the right water for the right job and try to make sure that we're using the right quality of water for the right purpose. You know, do you need to be watering your lawn with drinking water? Probably not. Mm -hmm. Um, so things like that. So that's something that we're always trying to explore and and really push the boundary of, well, how can we implement this? How can we do it in a way that's cost effective? Because of course, you know, all of those costs get passed on to customers and, you know, like you and me. So being aware Mm -hmm. of the, I guess, balancing, those issues is really important.
0: So let's go into a bit of how you got to where you are. A lot of people who might be listening are on their own journey of being able to, you know, leverage their current experience into, you know, something different. Um, So can you say a little bit about how you got to running an agency in in the way that you are currently?
1: It's been an interesting ride. I have to say, if you had asked me even, you know, a few years ago, if, if I thought this is what I'd be doing, I would have laughed out loud. Um, so it definitely wasn't a long-term plan that I had kind of stewing for a long time. I actually didn't even start my career in the water industry at all. I have a degree in public policy and started in the Canadian public service, worked in the mining industry and then did a master's and things like that. And this just all just kind of happened, um, yeah, I did develop a passion for water as part of my master's research and, and water regulation. And I I worked in Africa um, in, when I was in the mining industry doing corporate social responsibility and and drilling water wells over there for needy communities. And I think you really appreciate what value water has, not only you know for drinking and, and the immediate public health benefit, but also for people's livelihoods and and girls' ability to access, you know, education and, and, and empowerment and things like that. So I think I was able to see kind of over the course of my career what an impact water had on people's lives. And coming from a place like Canada that's so water-rich, um, mm-hmm. we really had no appreciation. I, I didn't grow up with an appreciation for how important it is and how scarce a resource it is for some people. Um, mm. So I think that was really part of where my kind of water specific passion was born, but didn't, yeah. So as I said, you know, Canadian public service, mining sector, moved to Australia, masters. And then I worked in the public service here for some time, uh, including in the water industry, which was fabulous. And did some consulting and things like that. Uh, and, and was in a situation where I really felt like uh, it wasn't the right fit for me. I was learning a lot, but it wasn't the right fit. And so I just kind of jumped out on my own without really any plan. And, uh, I, I remember, um, when I started as a sole trader, I really had, had no plan at all. I was calling up kind of a few clients just to let them know that I was leaving where I was. And a few people asked me, they're like, Oh, so are you joining another firm or are you going out on your own? You know, cause we really want to keep working with you. And that was what sort of planted the seed. I was like, yes, that's exactly what's happening. I'm going out on my own mm-hmm. and I uh, will send you an email from my new address and, you know, I'll get in touch with you next week. And, you know 45 minutes in an ABN and you know that kind of a week's website later um you know I had my shingle up and I was doing my thing and and so it was really not something that I had ever planned to run a business or own one but it just seemed like the choices that I had made the leadership journey or the career journey that I was on was just not giving me the fulfillment that I wanted. You know, on paper, I was doing really well. I was earning decent money. I was getting promoted. I was being recognized. Like all that stuff was good. But I always felt like I was leaving something on the table that I wasn't really reaching my potential. And that probably seems really arrogant. But I think you know in yourself when you're not on the right path, there's some kind of feedback that you mm-hmm. become aware of uh, if you're open to it. And, um, I really didn't know what the right answer was, but I knew that what I was doing wasn't it. Mm. So for me, the couple of years that I spent working for myself just as a sole trader was not only a time for uh, refining my own skills and understanding my value proposition and, and building my capability, but also really understanding what I was about, what I wanted my contribution to be, you know, where I had made a special value add in the past and and trying to look back retrospectively on the different jobs I'd had and the different things that I'd done well, the things that I was proud of, the things I hadn't done well, the thing where I wasn't proud... And, you know, what was a common thread among those things and and just trying to build on that.
0: Mm, Fantastic. So can you say a little bit about the growth that you've experienced in the last two, three years?
1: Well, the biggest change over that time uh, has been growing from a kind of from a sole trader to um, building my business foundry, which is now six people, which probably doesn't seem like a lot. (laughs) But...
0: uh, well, going from one to six is is pretty significant. Yeah, I yeah. Think. So we're we're
1: uh, we're about eighteen months old now, maybe a little bit more. So we're still pretty young in terms of uh, business life, and and that evolution was a huge step for me. So uh, you and I did work together, as as you'd remember, uh, but your audience probably doesn't know mm-hmm. uh, around moving to that step, and that was actually a really important shift for me because I. I was doing my own thing, I was doing my Soul Trader thing, I, and I, I was happy, and I was getting lots of work, and everything was kind of good, and then mentors around me and, and people who cared about me were asking me very pointy questions, like, so you seem to be doing pretty good at this thing, like, what's next, what's next, what's next, uh, are you going to grow, are you going to grow, and I was really challenged by those questions, because I didn't have an answer, you know, people ask, oh, what's your five-year plan, I was like, I don't know, I thought I made it pretty clear I didn't have a plan, <laughs> I jumped off the cliff and built the airplane on the way down. Like I've got no idea. So it was very confronting to feel like I couldn't see what was happening. There was like a fog in front of the next step. I couldn't see what was next or what I should do or even what I wanted to do. And I think that was the biggest part. I think there was a barrier Mm -hmm. for me in terms of actually understanding what I even wanted or allowing myself Mm -hmm. to want what I even wanted. And that's a... It's a hard thing to uh, come to terms with, I think, because really you're the Mm. only thing getting in your own way. So the work that you and I did together you know, with the Wisdom Council was really useful for me because it really helped me lift the veil on some of that and be able to Mm. be very honest with myself in a very judgment-free way about what it is that I wanted and the future that I was planning for myself and that it was okay to want that and that if I wanted it, I should chase it. Um, And and that was, I think, a really important turning point. And after I came to that point, I mean, less than six months later, Foundry was born, and I had staff, and boom, everything just kind of went crazy. So you know, it's, um, it's amazing what happens when you kind of unblock a thing like that.
0: So can you talk a little bit about the, the roller coaster ride that it is when you, when you start something like this and you bring people together and the risks you take? Can you talk a bit about your experience that may help people, I guess, look beyond the, yes, everything's great? Because, I mean, I think people are quite realistic in that it's not always roses. And, and I, th- I think you've dealt really well with that. So I'm just I'm wondering what, what you'd like to share about that, that journey.
1: You know, it's interesting that you, that you ask that because, you know, you talk in theoretical about the ups and downs and, you know, that it's not always roses and you kind of have an expectation of like what that might be like. But until you actually do it, you have no idea. <laughs> like really is nothing like what you're going to imagine the highs will be higher the lows will be lower there's there's some great um and there are many of them out there you know on the internet you see like the entrepreneurial journey and you see these different kind of you know, like depictions of people falling off cliffs and you know using swing wires to get across and all these different kinds of things and mm-hmm. and that seems very cute in the abstract and then You turn around one day and you realize you're that guy, you know, hanging from a rope, swinging across going, holy hell, how did this happen? So I think that that's that's one of the things that is really important. So for me, uh, started Foundry, made my first hire very early on, which was a scary thing. Your first hire is always the scariest. That's what I want to, I think people need mm-hmm. to know that. The first one is the scariest. Mm-hmm. You you imagine you're in this position, you're like, I'm feeding myself, but like, how the hell am I ever going to pay to feed someone else? How's this, how's that going to work? Mm-hmm. You just have to do it because yes, you're, you know, ostensibly doubling your costs, assuming this person is full time or whatever. Um, but what you don't think about, what I didn't think about was that you're actually doubling the energy that is going into your business. You're actually doubling the commitment and the the skin in the game Ooh. by doubling your resources. And if you hire well, which I'm, I'm very lucky to have the most incredible team, they will be so committed and be absolutely, you know, it's and it's not even doubling, it's, it's two and, and a bit. Mm. I think that is something that I found really hard at the start. Like, how am I ever going to bring on a staff member? And then suddenly I had one and then suddenly I had three and then suddenly we had, you know, like it's, you realize what a benefit it is to your business to increase the level of effort and ideas and energy and capacity and thinking, you know, and, and and that becomes something that just is a virtuous cycle.
0: Is there anything else about this role that you have now found yourself in as far as like leading this organization that has been unexpected for you?
1: Oh yeah. Oh gosh. All of it, all the time. Look the... <laughs> As I said, I think, I think the ups and downs have been a big part of it. Um, we were lucky. You know, our first year was just incredible. You know, we were so, can I say, we exceeded all my expectations. Let's put it that way. You know, mm-hmm. like nominated for awards and had loads of interesting clients and fabulous work. And, and that was really great. But I definitely pushed a lot. And, and I really physically and probably mentally paid the price for some of that, um, which resulted in me getting chronically ill for a period of time. And it really challenged my role in the business and leading my team and it challenged them to, to step up. So there, would, there was a time where I kind of had to step away or at least kind of minimize my role for a period of weeks um, when I was really unwell. And that was a very hard time for the team because we had some serious like delivery Stuff happening and and important things Mm -hmm. that were you know really going on and and me not being there I think was really tough on them and and hard for them to not have me there to rely on and 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 check in with I mean I knew that they would be amazing and would handle it and it would be fantastic but I don't think they did Um, and Mm. so forcing yourself to remove yourself was actually a great growth opportunity for everyone because the team got mm. to prove to themselves, because I already knew yeah. that they could do it, that they didn't need me, that they were able to carry on. And, you know, my ops manager, who's just the most incredible, um, capable woman, you know, she just stepped in and, and, you know, in a way that I hadn't seen before. She coordinated before and and things like that and organized before, but, but really led in a way that was fantastic. So I think those hard times actually really teach you a lot and are a real opportunity Mm -hmm. for your business if you're able to see them as such. Your business does need to be able to live without you. Proving that not only to yourself, but to your team is actually really important.
0: And speaking of leadership, one of the things that also happened in the last while is that you've been asked to lead a, a national association. Can you talk Yeah, so about I'm that?
1: actually the Victorian president. So I'm the state president um, of the Australian Water Association. Okay. So it's a national organization, and there's a president uh, in every state. And we have a, a board president as well, who is fantastic. Yeah, so I got elected to this role uh About 18 months ago, so kind of about the time I started Foundry, uh, I became AWA Vic President, which is a lot to put on your plate um, in one go, uh, but actually has been amazing. Mm -hmm. And leading those two organizations has been very different and a fantastic counterpoint and a growth opportunity for me um, because they have such different characteristics. Um, The AWA in Victoria has been around for more than 55 years. Wow. Wow. So it's it's long. It's got tr- steeped in tradition and legacy and identity and all kinds of things that a new funky startup <laughs> is completely you know not about. I had more members on my state committee than I had staff in my business. Um, yeah, well. so, you know, it, it's just a completely different type of leadership. Also, when you're dealing with volunteers and a volunteer committee, again, you're dealing hundred percent with discretionary effort. Mm-hmm. You know, people can only put in what they want to. So the way that you motivate them and, and, and talk to them and, and try to help them feel connected to their work helped me a lot in my staff, you know, helping them feel connected. I mean, if everybody is showing up Because they want to, because they care, because they see the difference that they're making. I mean, it doesn't matter if they're getting paid or not. People want to show up.
0: So what does leadership mean to you now that's different than earlier in your life? Oh, that's a fantastic question.
1: Um, I think one of the things that I've learned, both from making mistakes myself and also watching others make them, my dad loves to say life is too short to make all these mistakes yourself, learn from others. I think this is very good advice. (laughs) Um, yeah. Although I have been prone to making a lot of mistakes myself. So you never know. Maybe I
0: wasn't paying attention. But <laughs> sometimes that's the best way to learn, though, don't you think?
1: It is, absolutely. Oh, if you look, if you don't have a few scars, I mean, are you really legit? Come on. <laughs> so, yeah, look, I think for me, having, as I said, made the mistake myself, but also seen others make it, is that there's a sense that leadership is about who can bang the table the loudest mm. and who can be the noisiest and who can advocate for their position the strongest. And I have seen that leadership style Mm -hmm. fail over and over again. I think the best leaders that I've seen and the ones that I respect the most are ones who are more about compromise, who understand the value of getting somewhere rather than specifically where they had decided you'd go. Mm -hmm. They are the ones who have embraced that softness, that collaborativeness, that Understanding that sort of, then you know that kind of yin and yang kind of idea of energy that the hard kind of method will get you so far, but only so far, mm. and that actually embracing a bit of yeah. softness and humility and yeah empathy Humanous. and compassion mm-hmm. will actually get you a lot further in, especially in the long run. So I think that that's um, there's a nuance there. In, in leadership where I think when you're young you think that it's all about pushing pushing, pushing and driving 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 and being the the one with all the answers and all that kind of thing whereas I think as you develop or as I've you know developed I've definitely seen, a lot more success personally and in others who are able to get the most out of other people who are able to get the most out of a situation who are able to park their own agenda and see the bigger picture and help others to see it too
0: so in terms of learning from others is there like a resource or a book that you find yourself um, referring often to others oh
1: that's a great question i love books I have got such a big library. It's actually really sweet. My partner buys me books instead of flowers. It's adorable. Oh, wow. I love that. Books in particular. Um, So I have loads of them. There are several that I think are really useful for people at various parts of their leadership journey, I think. There are a few that I've drawn Mm -hmm. on definitely – over the years um, that are really fantastic. What comes to mind at the moment? So, uh, uh, Do I have to pick one or can I pick a few? No, no, yeah, a handful. Excellent. Oh, good. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think, you know, people who are searching for a kind of general sort of meaning, um, The Alchemist is great um, by Mm. Paolo Coelho. I don't know if anybody else has has read it. It's not specifically Mm. a business book, but it's really a book about life. Mm. Um, And every time I read it, I get something different out of it. It's a book that I revisit from time to time. And it offers me something different. It's an allegory um, for life. It's about a boy who's a shepherd and he you know, goes on this kind of life journey. And I won't spoil the end, but it it comes up with a very kind of deep meaning about life. And it seems like a very simple story. It's written in a very accessible way. You can read it in an afternoon, Hmm. but is extremely it's extremely connecting in terms of the the bigness of life and and also its simplicity at the same time. So that's that's one that I um really really enjoy. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um it's another one. Another one um from a business point of view that I love and and refer to all the time and lots of people do. It's almost cliché, but I do love it is Jim Collins good to great. Okay, yeah. Um I think that had a lot of meaning for me even just the title because I felt like in my own life and business transformation can have, as I mentioned before, that sense of feeling like you were always kind of leaving something on the table. That was an important and kind of pivotal life choice I felt like I was making. I felt like the life that I had was good, but I wanted one that was great. Yeah. And so for me, even just the title of it was – you know, aligned with where I, I wanted to go. Um, and I think mm-hmm. the things that he has published in that book, and that's why it's such a classic, is because they're so true. And it talks a lot about leadership style and, and the types of leadership that are effective and the types of leaders that are effective, you know, having that incredible optimism, that, that belief that you're going to do it and that you can mm-hmm. do it, but also the humility and the honesty to look the hard problems in the face and not be afraid to be spoken truth to by your staff and the people around you and having the ability to listen and be honest about how bad things are when they're bad. Mm. But again, that, that optimism that you'll figure it out. So I think that that has a, a really important resonance, especially as you're navigating those sort of, you know, dizzying highs and devastating lows that I mentioned. Mm. I think that's an important thing to come back to. The, the third one, yeah, the last one, and I'm oh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. I can see the cover. Oh, turning pro, that's what it's called. Oh yeah, turning pro. I don't know if you've ever read it. Um, I'm trying to remember who the author is. I think it's Stephen Pressfield. Could be, and it's a it's a tiny again, it's a tiny little book. It's not big. It was probably the book that helped me most. Give myself permission or understand that nobody is ever going to anoint you and give you the right to do anything. You just have to do it. You, know, mm. you become a, a writer by writing every day. You know, you become a singer by singing every day. You know, you, you become the thing by being the thing, not because anybody said, okay, here you go. You get to be the thing now. Yeah. And it's about how you change yourself and how you change your personal discipline and how you change your focus, be the thing. And you just focus on being it. The permission comes completely from yourself. Um and so turning pro, it's actually written for artists? Oh yeah. Which I thought was really interesting um because mm-hmm. it is that sense of like well how, when when am I a painter? You know, when when am I when can I call myself a painter? It's like well when you decide you are. You know, when you paint every day, when it's what you love, you know. And for mm-hmm. me, it was that sense of well when when do I become an entrepreneur? When do I become a business owner? When do I become a CEO? It's like well when I decide I do. When I have a staff that that sees me in that way, when I behave in that way, when I mm-hmm. show up in that way. And it's really about that. It's about that sense of not waiting for someone to tell you that you are. It's just being.
0: Yeah, I like that. So I'll make sure to put uh, links to all of those books in the show notes as well. I wanted to ask a question about your vision of the future in terms of what you think we need to pay most attention to in preparation for what's coming down the pipe.
1: Uh, down the pipe? I, is that a, is that a pun intended, Tathra? <laughs> uh yeah (laughs) (laughs) why not why not um look what what do we need to be most um mindful of for the future is that that the question
0: yeah ultimately
1: look I think the more and more Mm -hmm. we learn about the future the more we learn that it's completely uncertain um Mm -hmm. and and that is something that is hard you know our society loves certainty it loves a predictable mm. pattern it loves linear black and white it is or it isn't type of thinking relationships constructs institutions etc i think we need to be prepared for a lot of gray a lot of blurry lines a lot of messiness in all mm. of those areas i think it's already starting yeah you know in the water industry we talk about it in terms of multiple benefits you know how do we how do we create a system that's going to create the most benefit, you know what I mean? If your local government is doing one thing and your water authority is doing one thing and state government is doing another thing and Mm. if we actually brought those organizations together and tried to make a better outcome using all of their budgets and leveraging you know their joint capabilities sort of doing more with more rather than doing more yeah
0: that sounds i like that that sounds you know then
1: then that would be a really different way of understanding our world but right now it's all very linear it's everybody's got their linear accountabilities and yes on theory we'd love to be part of that but oh gosh how would we budget for it Mm. you know so i think there's there is a messiness that we need to be equipped for Mm. So how do we prepare for that? It's really about being able to have authentic conversations. It's being able to know where we are, have a strength in our own selves and purpose to the point where we can come to that shared table and not be afraid of it, not come with an attitude of scarcity or or fear about what might happen, about us losing out, this sense of a zero-sum game. You know, especially in, you know, public services like water, as long as community wins, everybody wins. You know, the community doesn't care Mm. whose budget it came out of. For them, it's just the public purse. It's all just public money. They don't care whose budget it was as long as they get the outcome. And I think that kind of focus is quite important. I think we need to value different ways of knowing than we have in the past. You know, we really value technical uh, expertise. We value engineering and science and, and you put a lot of stock in those things. And and that's a good thing, but people also have tacit knowledge and experiential knowledge and traditional knowledge and and Aboriginal knowledge and those types of things. I think are also really important to include here. There are different ways of knowing a situation or, or a problem And we need to be open, open open-minded to more of that as this kind of messiness comes down on us.
0: Mm, I like that. It reminds me of the worldview intelligence and being able to recognize different perspectives and different ways of of understanding the world that actually bring value to the decision making that we have.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, And that's it. And understanding that they have value. And just because that value doesn't look the way we would normally expect it to look, doesn't mean that it isn't valuable. You know, because at the end of the day, Mm. value is a social construct. We value what we understand and can see a use for. Mm -hmm. I think it's about being more open minded about, well, what could we value about this? What in here could we have a use for? What could be a contribution Mm. from this perspective And, and being open to that rather than seeking to exclude, seeking to
0: include? Absolutely. I'm going to ask you my tall puppy question if someone came to you and they have like a business idea or a book or a creative project that they want to start, but they're a bit reluctant, perhaps they're recognizing that there are both external barriers as well as internal barriers that have them feeling uncertain about pursuing something that they've got some passion for, but also some reluctance, what kind of advice would you have for them? Oh, gosh.
1: Um, Having completely been there myself, I think I would probably advise a few things. First of all, you're not alone and you're not the first person to feel this way. Mm. Feeling like you're the only person in the world with a crazy idea or, or whatever it is, is part of the isolation of it. That sense of being an outlier. Um, but actually you're not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, And there's lots of other people, um, who have felt the same way as you, uh, over time. I think that's why, you know, the stories of people like Edison and Tesla and et cetera, how so much resonance today because the, all of the things that they tried and failed. And that's a story that I think we can all relate to in some way. I think that that's part of it. First of all, so you're not the only one. Second of all, surround yourself with people who believe in you. Mm. You know, that is so critical. The people that you surround yourself with are absolutely a massive part of the recipe for success. And if you've got people in your ear telling you you can't, it is going to be so much harder. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to surround yourself with people who believe in you, who absolutely support you, who will tell you the hard truths and will give you mm-hmm. honest feedback. Nobody likes an echo chamber and it's not useful. Um, so that's not what I mean. But I mean people who really have that, that belief that you can do it and remind you of that when you forget yourself.
0: And how do you, how do you find those
1: people? Geez, I, I certainly hope that most people have at least a couple of those in their lives already. You know, whether it's your parents or your best mate or, you know, some person you're already working with or a mentor or somebody in, in your circle. I mean, I really, gosh, it would be a sad world if, if people didn't have anyone around who, who did, did believe in them.
0: I think for people who are especially starting an entrepreneurial journey, there's a lot of question as to why why would you do that? That's, you know, it's a very difficult path and and a lot of people get dissuaded from it. But I feel like there's a lot more resources out there at the moment. Is is there anything that you could say about um, how you've gone about surrounding yourself with people who believe in what you're doing? I've been very lucky,
1: as I, as I mentioned. I mean, and, and coming back to your earlier point, I mean, there are definitely groups and entrepreneurs groups and meetup groups and things that you can go to to find like-minded people if you need that. Mm-hmm. I didn't do a lot of that, I have to say myself, mm-hmm. just because I didn't feel like I needed to. There's no, absolutely nothing wrong with it. And I know so many people that have gotten loads out of it. Mm. Um, but for me, that wasn't that wasn't the path. I had great Mentors around me who mm-hmm. supported me, partners who who were fantastic, and, and my family has been great. So, I, I never I never really got the what the hell are you thinking? <laughs> yeah. uh, and maybe that makes me unique. Um, but I, I never I never got that. Uh, so I didn't really have that that struggle. I was the only one who wasn't sure if I could do it. So I, I'm very lucky in that way. But in terms of recruiting a team and you know anybody else who is on your team emotionally or professionally, I think the most important thing is to stand for something. Mm. You've got to shine a light, you know, you just got to stand there like a, like a lighthouse and just shine the light. And the people who, who believe in that thing, who, who want to shine that same light too, will find you.
0: Mm. Nice.
1: And I think that that's, you know, with Foundry, we've never once put out a job ad, never once. And we've recruited our advisory board and, you know, our Mm -hmm. associates and our staff and geez, nearly 20 people affiliated with Foundry at the moment. And, it's one of those things where when you stand for something when you decide to put a stake in the ground it's a gutsy thing in this mm-hmm. age um and say yes we're here to make change yes we're here to change the status quo yes we want to align ourselves with the people who are doing things differently and support them and empower them and suddenly those people find you fantastic i think that's really the way that I've chosen to go about it and the way that foundry we operate. And so far it's worked for us. I mean, will it always, I don't know. I hope so. Cause I think that there's an authenticity about it. And, and that's important that, that authentic sharing of what we're really about and, and putting that on your sleeve and not being afraid of it. Um, it takes courage, of course, because there are some people who are not going to like it. You know, there are some people who are not going to go for that, mm-hmm. but if it's what you're really about, then just, you know, hold strong and, and carry on.
0: Is there anything else that you wanted to say before we finish up?
1: You know, I think about when I was first starting out and all of the work that I did on doing all these strength finder tests and, you know, aptitude tests and personal profiling and reading all of these books and kind of doing that deep introspection and that, that research and, and what I call putting in the work kind of on yourself. I think that's, that's always a good place to start. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if people are unsure or a feeling they're not sure where to go, or whatever, you know, looking inward and getting a really good understanding of yourself is always a good idea because you are always going to be part of the picture and you are always going to be the one who has to make key decisions. And the more equipped you are to do that, the more aware you are of what baggage you might bring to any situation for better or worse. The better equipped you are to navigate those situations successfully so i think anyone who isn't sure what the next step is looking inward and getting clear about yourself and what you're about and what your value is and what you want <laughs> even though sometimes that's really hard um is super super valuable and you'll, you'll never regret the time you spend on that
0: beautiful thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today no it's a pleasure thanks tathra If you're a young water professional keen to develop your leadership skills, information about the program we're running at the start of next year is on the Foundry website. Foundry.associates/leadership, and check out the show notes for a link. In the Leadership Foundations program, we'll be running through a framework that will sound familiar to Tall Poppy listeners, generating integrated intelligence via looking at different ways of knowing. Like Lindsay said, this will be an increasingly important skill in the future. And the program is, of course, starting with ourselves, self-awareness, emotional intelligence, seeing the impact that we have on others. And the program will also look at power intelligence and how to use our social and personal power more effectively. We'll explore how to inspire rather than influence and bringing different perspectives together, worldview intelligence, connecting those diverse viewpoints to a collective intelligence and being able to make better decisions via group wisdom. The program includes bringing in experts from the water industry to share their wisdom as well. So check it out, and feel free to tag someone if you think they might be interested. So, what did you think? Can you see why I enjoy amplifying voices like Lindsay's and exploring the work she's doing and applying human-centered leadership principles to an industry as vital and critical as the water industry? Yeah, I love her vision, and especially about bringing resources together to achieve more. What an awesome strategy. I would love to see that happen more. And her emphasis on looking inward as a way to find direction, as you can imagine, this is something I really appreciate, as much as the idea of connecting to a sense of purpose as a way to prepare for the future. Absolute gold. And I really like what she says about being your own authority. If you want to be a leader, give yourself permission, make the decision, and do what it takes to pursue what you're aiming to achieve. And even though we didn't touch on it much, I know that she's another leader who comes from a personal experience of balancing work and the rest of life. When we feel so passionately about what we're doing, sometimes our body will have other ways of letting us know where balance is. You know, she is one of the healthiest people I know. She's doing all the right things, eating well, exercise. She's super active cycling and rowing. And yet sometimes things come up that seem to come out of nowhere. And I really admire with how she dealt with getting sick and the faith that she had in her team to step up her advice to create a business that can run without you. It's a sign of strength and something we can all learn from. There's a lot that we can take from this. So you can see the show notes for links to Foundry, to the Leadership Foundations program, the books that Lindsay recommends, as well as her LinkedIn profile. So, thanks for listening to Tall Poppy, where we look at how to lead differently in work, business, and life. See you on the flip side.